trust the Midas touch. That's the motto for a car repair shop by the name of Midas. Uh, Most of us probably know the story, King Midas, everything he touched turned to gold. Now, if we knew what that story actually was about, though, maybe we would be a little less quick to use it as a motto for a business. It's actually a cautionary tale about the desires of the heart for riches and what might happen if you actually got it. King Midas, you know, he made a wish to have more gold than anyone in the entire world. And as a result, anything he touched would turn to gold. Only his dream that came true turned out to be a nightmare. His golden touch ends up destroying everything in his life. And as one author's retelling of it would have, actually turns his dear daughter into a statue of gold. There's something fascinating about that question. What would you ask for if you could wish for absolutely anything? What is it your heart desires most? Lots of fantasy tales that use that very question because it it reveals the true person. It acts like a mirror to show us who we really are. This morning, we see a window into one such person who really did have just that opportunity presented to him, a wish that anything his heart desired could be granted to him. I'm speaking, of course, of King Solomon and his famous wish for wisdom. This morning, we will see that a complicated king receives a gracious gift to rule, wisdom itself. And as we see this story unfold, we'll learn something of our own need for wisdom and where to find it. We'll move through the passage in two sections, two sections moving through this very famous story with surprising depth to it. First, we'll see the complicated king with a divided heart. The complicated king with a divided heart in verses one through three. And second, we'll see the generous gift from God to rule. The generous gift from God to rule. We'll see that in verses 4 through 15. A complicated king receives a generous gift from God to rule. Wisdom. How can we find it and why do we need it? Let's begin in verses 1 through 3. The complicated king with a divided heart. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes your Sunday school understanding, particularly of well-known Bible passages, is less than fully accurate. Uh, I, I know that very often the things that I remember being taught are true to a point, but maybe they're, they're flattened out. And I understand why. I've got young kids in the house when I'm teaching them Bible stories, you know, the, the attention span of five-year-olds is a fickle thing indeed. And yet, there's a danger there when we have familiarity with a passage, but the flattened out version of it, we can miss the depth of it and and come to conclusions that the passages itself don't lead us to. Sometimes people think of King Solomon's life as having just two eras to it. One in which he was very, very good, and one in which he was very, very bad. Well, there's some truth to that, but... As we'll see, it's more complicated than that. 
At this point in the story, Solomon has risen to the throne of his father David, just as God had promised would happen. As he has taken the throne, there's been more than a little bit of drama and a lot of blood that was shed. Solomon had to eliminate his enemies before he could establish his kingdom. But now that that's behind him, we get to zoom in on the man Solomon and to see a little window into his heart. And frankly, it's complicated. See there in verse 3, we know that Solomon loved the Lord. Verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord. Dr. Phil Riken points out that Solomon is the only person in the whole Bible that is described as loving God with these words. It is a high description of the young king to say that he was a lover of God. He was someone that delighted in God's being. He was someone who enjoyed God, found pleasure in him, who devoted himself to God just as his father David had done before. You could say he was a king after God's own heart. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree in this case. Notice too that his love for God was matched with obedience for God's word. That's also there in verse 3. He was walking in the statutes of David his father. That is he was paying careful attention to the word of God. And living a lifestyle consistent with it. That's a great start for a description of the heart of the king. And yet that's not the only thing that's said about Solomon. It turns out his heart is a divided one. Even from the beginning here, even as he is truly faithful, he is also flawed. We see here there's this issue of his worship. The second half of verse 3, he's walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. The way that's written only is a a sharp turn mid-sentence. Gives something of stark contrast to what came right before. How is it that Solomon could worship at high places and yet still be a lover of God? Now some commentators uh, alleviate this tension by saying, well, it's understandable that he'd worship at high places. After all, there was no temple yet. There was no centralized place to worship. We see in verse 2 that all the people were doing this very thing. They were sacrificing at high places because, as the very words of the text tell us, no house of the Lord had yet been built. So you can understand why Solomon would worship there. Where else would he worship? And yet, if we have been paying careful attention to what has come before this text, and what And we pay careful attention to what this very book will show later in this text. We'll know that you cannot so easily dismiss the dangers of worshiping at high places. High places were places of pagan worship for false gods. They are the places that will one day lead Solomon astray. The beginning of his reign he worships. Maybe he tolerates the worship at a high place, but at the end of his reign... Those high places will be the place of his fall. If we just knew the law of Moses, we would understand that worshiping at high places is a bad idea indeed. Numbers 33, 
verse 52, Numbers 33, verse 52, they were instructed what to do with high places. Then you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. I think the best we can say about what was going on is that God's people had started to mix true worship of Yahweh, the true God, with forms of worship of the people of the land around them. They had intermingled syncretistic worship, the practices of the people around them. This is foreshadowing of Solomon's fall to come, but it's not the only foreshadowing. There's another flaw that we, draws our attention in verse one. Solomon marries a daughter of Egypt. We're told that he made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He did that by taking Pharaoh's daughter in marriage. Now, marriage alliances were very common back then. It's a, a great political strategy to try and make someone uh, a friend instead of a foe by climbing into their family tree via marriage. So at that level, what Solomon does shows his prestige on the world scene. He would be someone that Pharaoh would want to have this sort of alliance with, as well as a sort of political acumen he's already demonstrated back in chapter 2. And yet, again, if we just remembered the very clear instructions that God has given his people, we would know that this is not a sign of faithfulness. This is a sign of failure. God had instructed his people not to go back to Egypt, not even to buy horses from Egypt, much less to go back to find wives there. And even more than that, there's a universal prohibition against marrying foreign wives. Not because of racism or anything like that, but because foreign wives would come with foreign gods. And this, again, foreshadowing Solomon's fall, we'll see in chapter 11, where his foreign wives lead him to worship foreign gods at their high places. Solomon, is he flawed? Or is he faithful? Well, the answer is surely both. Now, it is certainly true that he starts much better than he ends. There will be much to commend of Solomon in this chapter and the chapters ahead, far more than there is to criticize. And yet, even at this moment, we need to recognize he is a mixed bag. He is a complicated king with a divided heart. Maybe you're still struggling to understand how that could be. How could someone truly be a lover of God and yet do so many foolish, even sinful things? But friend, consider your own heart as you ask that question. I hope you would describe yourself as someone that loves the Lord. I hope you find delight in God. I hope you find joy in worshiping God. I hope that you can truly own the lyrics of a song like, Come Thou Fount, which is a, a prayer expressing that there is no higher thing than God alone for us. Brothers and sisters, I know, know the joy of loving God. I hope you do too. I remember just a, a few weeks ago, 
talking with one of you as you had described this renewed love of God that you had experienced. You were beaming as you told me of the way that you just rekindled your love for God. You know that joy in your own heart, don't you? Why isn't it that way always? Well, it's because we Christians are conflicted creatures. We Christians are conflicted creatures. Like Solomon, our hearts are divided. See, the Christian heart is a battle zone between the spirit of God that has come to indwell us and the remaining sin, the flesh that is still yet within us. Galatians 5.17 tells us as much. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It can be a disorienting, discouraging thing as you notice sin in your own heart. Sometimes Christians come asking me, does this mean that I'm not really a believer if I continue to struggle with sins, even things I know are wrong and yet I feel myself drawn to them? And yet my answer is always the same. No, my dear brother or sister, the mere fact that there is a struggle is a mark that you are a believer. Charles Spurgeon spoke of the fact of this reality, that only those that have come to know Christ are those that know the difficulty of dealing with sin. He says, many men who never know much of their sin until after the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on their consciences. Catch that? They don't really know of their sin until after the blood of Christ has been sprinkled on their consciences. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when you find your heart still has within it corners that need to be conquered for the kingdom of Christ and be turned over to the reign of his love and joy. That work and that battle will not end until you are with him in glory forever. But don't lose heart. One day that struggle will be over. And you will be able to say that you are totally devoted to God, that your love affair with him will go on for eternity. King Solomon, he was a complicated king with a divided heart. But there is good news coming because this complicated king receives a generous gift from God to rule. That's what we see second in verses four through 15. The generous gift from God to rule. Solomon receives a gift greater than anyone in this world has received to that point. Wisdom from God himself. Now there have been some amazing gifts given throughout the history of the world. Our nation received a mighty gift indeed back in June of 1885. Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, arrived in the United States. It's amazing, a symbol of American freedom actually has an origin in France. It turned out some other freedom lovers in France loved the pursuit of freedom in the United States, and so they made this incredible statue and gave it as a gift to encourage the Americans in their pursuit of liberty. 
an amazing gift for a young nation, only surpassed in this passage by an more incredible gift for a young king. God grants Solomon an opportunity of a lifetime. He grants him something that Solomon couldn't even have dared to dream of, an offer for anything the king might desire. We see in verse 4, the king was worshiping lavishly at this place called Gibeon, the great high place. He's there offering thousands of sacrifices to God in his devotion to him. And then in a dream, God appears to Solomon and presents him with an offer, a dream offer. Anything he wants, just ask it. Solomon could have asked for a lot of things. Could have asked for wealth. He certainly could have asked for wisdom. He could have asked to be loved. He could have asked for victory in battle over his enemies. But instead, Solomon asks for wisdom. And he does so in the form of a prayer in verses 6 through 9. And that prayer is worthy of our attention. It's a a wonderful prayer to pattern after as we think of prayer ourselves. So I'll go through the three parts to it briefly here. Verse in, first in verse 6, Solomon recounts God's grace. He tells back to God all the faithfulness God has shown to David and to Solomon as one of David's son and bringing Solomon to reign on the throne. He starts by talking about what God has done, God's grace. That is the foundation of his prayer. Then in verses 7 through 8, Solomon realizes his own inadequacy. He is humble and contrite. And in so doing, the Lord considers his plight. Read with me those two verses. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. For a king to describe himself like a little child that doesn't know the way to even go in or out of a building is great, great humility. It's not just his own inadequacy, though. It's the highness of the calling God has given him in verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. Solomon realizes that he has been given an incredible responsibility. He must lead God's people. He must be the one to usher in righteousness and justice. And he must be the king that God's people so badly need. And he realizes in his own strength he doesn't have that ability. All of that leads to his request in verse 9. The request for wisdom. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon has a kingdom ambition to bless the kingdom of God, to bless the people of God, and he asks for the tool he needs to accomplish this. Wisdom to rule. We see in verse 10 that God was pleased with Solomon's request. The fact that Solomon didn't ask for something selfish like riches or wealth. 
not victory over his enemies or lots of people to adore him. Instead, he asks for the ability to bless God's people. As a result, God grants Solomon his wish. He gives him a mind capable, wise to be able to rule God's people justly. But more than that, do you see how as Solomon sought first the kingdom that God decided to add all these other things to him as well? God gives him the things he didn't ask for. In verse 13, both riches and honor so that no king will compare with you all your days. All the blessings of the golden age of Israel coming straight from God through this ask of his king. God does have one condition though in verse 14. It is that Solomon continues to walk in obedience. As always, God is after the heart of his king. And Solomon's long reign and long life will be contingent on continued faithfulness to God. Now, at this point, we need to pause because many Christians struggle mightily with what it is that Solomon has received and how to square that with his failure at the end of his life. How is it that Solomon can be granted the literal divine wisdom of God and yet in his old age to go after worshiping other gods, to forsake the God that he loved so much. How is that wise for someone to do that? Well, to answer that, we, we need to understand what sort of wisdom it was that Solomon asked for. Now, most of the time when we talk about wisdom, we, we speak about it in a way as just being able to make the right decisions in any circumstance. And that's a fine way to use the word. And yet in the Bible, wisdom has a much broader meaning than just that. There are different types of wisdom that are spoken of in different parts of the Bible. There'll be uh, the type of wisdom to be able to answer facts, uh, answer riddles or know facts, lots of understanding. You find uh, references to lots of that in Proverbs. There's a type of wisdom that's, uh, wisdom that's street smarts, you know, knowing when to avoid a dodgy person or when to make a, a solid investment. There's also spiritual wisdom the sort of inner secret knowledge that can only come from God revealing himself to someone. Now Solomon will be great in all these categories. There's no doubt about it. If when you take the time to study the first few chapters of Proverbs, you will find he understands that wisdom begins with fear of the Lord and that it comes from the very mouth of God and it results in him being extremely competent in a whole host of areas. Yet the wisdom that he asks for and is divinely given here is the specific type of wisdom needed to rule the kingdom. Uh, look with me in verse 9, and then we're going to look at the end of the chapter in verse 28. In verse 9, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Now, skip over to verse 28, passage we'll look at next week. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. 
You see, what he asked for is exactly what the people perceive that God has given him. God has supernaturally imparted him with the wisdom needed to govern and rule well. To be the king that God's people need. That doesn't mean that Solomon has perfect wisdom in every area of life. And indeed, as his life will bear out when it comes to morality and even spiritual wisdom, it turns out he is very deficient in those areas. And yet, what God grants him is a generous gift, a gift of grace, a gift to build the kingdom and bless the people in the kingdom for the sake of God's glory. Now, how can we apply this incredible gift from God to Solomon, to our lives? Let me give you two lines of application. First, Use this as an opportunity to reset your prayer life. To reset your prayer life. Solomon gives us a wonderful example of how we can pray. And if you're struggling to pray during this pandemic, maybe you should hit the restart button. I mean, that certainly works on so many of our gadgets. When they're not working, you, you restart them. And maybe you have fallen out of the rhythms that are, you know are healthy for your spiritual practices, specifically when it comes to prayer. If that's you, maybe the Lord has for you a reset using the pattern that you see of the way Solomon prayed. It's not a hard method of prayer. It's certainly a wonderfully balanced one. Just three parts to it. First, you start by recounting God's grace to you. You just tell God all the things that he has done for you and the ways he has blessed you and been kind to you. If you're struggling to identify anything in your life that falls into that category, friend, just think of what you have in the gospel of Jesus. He's saved you. He's forgiven your sins. He's brought you into close fellowship with him. Start your prayer by recounting God's grace to you. It's like an ignition in your heart to start the fire of love that must blaze hot for prayer to persist. Second, realize your inadequacy. Realize your inadequacy. It's very difficult to continue praying if you feel as if you're self-sufficient. If you feel like you have the wisdom and strength you need to live like you want in your life, you find yourself praying very, very little. But like Solomon, if you realize how heavy the, the weight of the crown, how, how heavy the responsibility you have to live faithfully to God, if you realize your own lack of strength and wisdom, then praying will come much more naturally. Spend time in your prayers telling God how you are not up to the task. Reveal your flaws to him. And watch as your prayers Watch as your prayers strengthen you at the point of your very weakness. Third, request help. Request help. God does not grow tired of us coming to him and asking for help. He certainly does not begrudge us when we come and ask him to do what we cannot do. When you ask God on the basis of his grace and your own inadequacy, friend, you'll find your prayer life so much more fruitful.
Now, if you struggle to have this sort of balance to your pattern of praying, let, let me just point out to you that sometimes praying in groups with other people is a wonderful way to kickstart your prayer life again. I know it's hard right now as we can't be near each other. That's uh, why, let me just make a suggestion to you. If you're struggling in your prayer life, make a point, mark your calendar for Sunday, May 31st. So not the following Sunday after this, but the one after that. We are going to start a rhythm of having prayer and praise nights as we're able. For now, they will be over Zoom. And uh, the idea is for these prayer meetings to be uh, both spiritually vibrant and interactive. I had heard one pastor describe the way that these sort of group prayer meetings function in a person's prayer life. It's like jumping on board of a moving train. If you feel like you're stuck and not making any momentum in your prayer life, when you are around others that have more vibrancy and have more balance to their prayer life, it helps to get you to come along with them and catch their momentum as you seek the Lord in your prayers. Make a point of tuning in, Zoom with us to a, a more effective prayer life, life on May the 31st. Second application, seek first the kingdom and the wisdom to build it. Seek first the kingdom and the wisdom to build it. I think all of us need to ask ourselves, what would we wish for if we were given Solomon's opportunity. When we look in that hypothetical mirror, what does it reveal? What do our hearts desire most? Maybe you're tuning in this morning and you find yourself wishing for some of the things that Solomon did not ask for. Maybe you do want riches. Maybe you do want relationships. Maybe you do want to be honored, or maybe there are people you even want revenge for. Friend, realize, as your heart longs for those things, it's longing for things that are so little in comparison to the things that you could have, the very joy of God himself. It's like going into a steakhouse like St. Elmo's and instead of ordering a, a wonderful steak off the menu, instead asking for a helping of hamburger helper. Don't settle for these lesser created things. Go to the creator that made you and to, he's the only one that can satisfy your heart. If you're tuning in this morning and you're not a Christian, this is one of the things that people so often misunderstand about Christianity. We don't believe that we are to obey God in order to get stuff from him. You know, blessings, money, good health. No, we think that God himself is the thing that we need most. That the message of the Bible is that we were made for God. To enjoy him and to serve him. And the great tragedy is that we have instead wanted the things God has made instead of the creator himself. The Bible calls that sin. It is rejecting God and wanting his things more than him. And the Bible tells us that that is a suicidal desire. That one day it will destroy us. God is not pleased with our rejecting him and pursuing his things instead. The Bible calls that sin and it tells us the punishment due for sin is death. 
Eternal separation from the God who made us. But the good news is that this God that made us is merciful and kind and loving. So much so that he would even take those that he has rejected in him and would send his son on a rescue mission for them. He sent the man Jesus to come and live a perfect life. To give up that life as a substitutionary sacrifice. To punish Jesus in the place of sinners that have rejected God. And as a result, to give those sinners the thing their hearts longed for, even though they haven't known it. A way back to him. Full forgiveness of their sins. And a relationship with the God who made them now and forever. Friend, if you're tuning in this morning, know this is what you were made for. To know God through his son, Jesus Christ. The only way you can have satisfaction in your soul is to repent of the way you have been living. To turn away from these desires and instead turn to God through Jesus Christ. If you don't know how to do that, you can reach out. Or to, uh, through email or uh, to call the church office. I'd love to introduce you to Jesus and the joy of what it means to love God through him. To all of us that are Christians, let's remember what a joy it is to serve the better king than Solomon as he builds his kingdom. Jeremiah looked forward to what King Jesus would be like. He said, behold, Jeremiah 23, 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. King Jesus lived up to that and every other prophecy of what sort of king he would be. He is the wise king. And he builds a better kingdom than Solomon was building. An eternal kingdom. The very kingdom of heaven. And what good news, friends. He tells us that when we see ourselves as his servants, as agents of that kingdom, that everything we need to serve him in this life will be added to us. You know, Jesus gives good gifts to build his church. Each of us has a station. None of us are the anointed king, and yet each of us is going about the business of him, building his kingdom one spiritual brick at a time. No matter what your station in the kingdom, as you build it and work for it, you need the same thing Solomon needed. You need wisdom to be faithful to your calling. Parents, it is a high calling to evangelize and disciple your children. If you have a junior higher or a high schooler, maybe you know the tension of this even more. How hard should you press? How quickly should you correct? When should you bring them to the word and to correct them? And when should you forbear? It requires incredible wisdom to know how to be a good steward of this perch in the kingdom. My dear brothers and sisters, parents, would you ask King Jesus for wisdom? Would you ask him to help you with the task he's entrusted you with? 
He loves to answer prayers like that. Or, or maybe instead you are a business owner or a leader of some organization. You have lots of people that look up to your leadership. You make big decisions that have big impact on the community. You know, right now is a very difficult time to be in leadership. If you have such authority, realize it's not by accident. King Jesus intends for you to use your authority for the cause of his kingdom. It requires wisdom how to do that well. Have you asked him for that wisdom lately? Have you prayed as you went into the office or as you got ready to work at your desk at home? Have you prayed, Jesus, show me how to use my job for your kingdom and your glory? Jesus loves to answer prayers like that, friends. Or what about those of you who work for the civil authorities? Police officers, judges, various government officials. Knowing how to honor God and honor the responsibilities you have to the communities, uh, the community of people that you serve, that requires incredible amounts of wisdom. But the good news, friends, is that Jesus delights to give his servants the wisdom they need to build his kingdom. Would you ask him for it? Certainly those of us who have roles as le of leadership within ministries, we should feel acutely this need for God to give us the ability to lead his people the way that they need to be led. If you have a teaching role, if you sit on a board, or if you just volunteer your time for some sort of ministry, do you realize the weight of responsibility you have representing God in front of people is no small matter. Would you ask him for wisdom to be a good steward of the moment, to serve him in a way that honors Jesus and builds up the very kingdom of God? Oh, it's good news that we serve the very wise king who delights to give wisdom to his kingdom servants if we would just ask. I love the way the passage ends after Solomon receives this word from God. In verse 15, he wakes up. Behold, it was a dream. He may not have even have dared to dream of such a generous gift from God, and yet this dream was true. How, how could he respond to that? Well, nothing else will do except worship. He goes before the ark. He offers up sacrifices. He, he throws a feast. What else is the right response to God giving us the wisdom to serve him, the God we love, except to respond with hearts of worship? We're going to do just that by singing the song, Be Thou My Vision. Listen to the words of that song. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father, I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee, 
one. Love for God. Wisdom from God. Worship to God. What a calling, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the wise king that we, your people, need. We are so privileged to sit under your good reign and rule. You always lead your people into prosperity. And you will one day cleanse us of our divided hearts. And allow us to love you with full, undivided devotion. Jesus, now would you help us to be wise servants as we live in this world for your glory. Grant us now hearts to worship you full of flame of the love we have for you. Help us to sing in a way that honors you. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.